What's up, friends? This is Exploring Cinema. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Josiah. And we're here to do another episode. But before we get into it, Josiah, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. Had a long day of hanging out with my daughter. She's a handful, but a whole lot of fun. She's six. We went to the aquarium. We had a dance party. I taught her how to cook scrambled eggs today. Ah, very <laughs> yeah. important. She even said cooking is fun. Cooking is fun. Yeah. How are you doing? Good. The ice is gone. We just had another winter event. I got a couple days off work, so that was nice. Nice. I think I've discovered I'm tired of having a crap car. Because my philosophy with cars is as long as they get me where I need to go and they're reliable, I'm fine. And so I'd rather not have a car payment and I'll drive it till it blows up. Well, the car I have now is like taking forever to warm up and it's like starting to smell hot after I drive it. I could take it in, but I don't want to spend any money on that car. I don't want to spend a dime on it. I'm kind of at that point of keep driving it, keep saving money. And when it blows up, I'll get a new car. Yeah. So I think the end is near. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's good to see you. Yeah. And it's good to be recording again. I wanted to bring up a couple things yeah. before we get started. Number one, did you watch the Super Bowl? Mm-hmm. Did you happen to see the Nope trailer? That yes. Dropped? Yes, I did. I love how Jordan Peele is the new M. Night Shyamalan. I think that's insulting to Jordan Peele, but okay. Well, M. Night Shyamalan, back in the day with Unbreakable and Signs, with Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense, yeah. Like, no matter what the movie was, they were huge events, and all that mattered mm-hmm. was that his name was attached. Gotcha. And that's exactly how the Nope trailer felt to me. I love the big event of it, and I love the mystery. Yeah, that's a good point. I guess I just bristle when you say he's the next M. Night Shyamalan. I very much don't want his career to follow that trajectory. Right. Just don't make the happening. <laughs> Jordan Peele, please. Don't make the happening. They're also not dissimilar in like, Us was a big swing. Not a perfect film, but a film that I liked quite a lot. And so that also reminds me of M. Night Shyamalan. That's but fair. definitely, at this point, Jordan Peele has a much better track record. I think so. But no, that, that's a good point. See the name and it kind of becomes a must-see. And then the second thing I wanted to mention was last night, Lauren and I went and saw Moonfall. Yeah. Roland Emmerich's new disaster film. <laughs> in which the moon falls out of the sky towards the earth. <laughs> threatening to destroy it. And it was amazing. It was so delightful. <laughs> 2.5 star movie, 5 star experience. So many inadvertently funny moments, bad CGI, and honestly, like, there's no violence on screen. It, there's all this destruction, but there's no danger. Yeah. There's no anxiety or suspense. It's just fun. So there was no muskets accurate at, like, 300 yards? <laughs> <laughs> Patriot. Yeah, you know, when I hear Roland Emmerich, he has kind of a negative reputation, I guess, for making, like, just big, dumb Doing films. the same thing over and over, too. And yeah, as much as I want to shit on him right now, I'm thinking, like, I've probably seen every single one of his movies. Did you see 2012? Yeah, okay. I did. Right. <laughs> yeah, was that the one where, like, Yosemite explodes, basically? John Cusack. Yeah, there's, there's all these, like, major disasters that are destroying the world. But you know what I remember most from that fucking film is uh, Woody Harrelson taking a bite out of the biggest pickle I've ever seen. <laughs> He keeps finding new ways to cause destruction. Yeah. And at this point, it's so absurd. It's come out the other end. It's sublime now. It's just like (laughs) the ultimate B-movie. Do you think Roland Emmerich, he's self-aware to a point? Based on his movies, you'd have to think so. Like he's winking at us the whole time. I mean, he obviously knows this is why people let me make movies. So I'm going to roll with it and I'm just going to have a good time. So Moonfall, huh? Probably won't land the same for everybody out there. But when we left the theater, we were ready to see it again. Nice. Before we dive in, in light of everything with Russia invading Ukraine and the world being kind of crazy right now. I just want to kind of take a moment and thank you for doing this podcast with me. When times like this happen, I I kind of recognize the importance of art and cinema, especially, and just like forging new perspectives, you know? So Mm -hmm. like your friendship and this podcast has just really made me just grateful 
tonight that we can do this. And I'm, and I'm just grateful that we can um, do this in safety. So my heart goes out to all the people in Ukraine and all the uh, craziness in the world right now. I don't know, I think um, art is maybe more important than ever, discussing it and talking about it and seeing other people's perspectives. Here, here. Here, here. So uh, this episode, it's going to be about a couple different films. We were hanging out at Great Escapes Brewery the other day, and I guess I mentioned that there's a lot of similarities between Pig and Nomadland. And I was surprised. Not two films that I would put together on my own, but once you mentioned it, they are both about living on the edges of society. Yeah, and I guess from that statement, it just it kind of got me and, and you thinking about, I don't know if it's a major trend, but it seems to me that here in the last year or two, a lot of these really acclaimed films that are making headlines at festivals and that are, you know, damn fine films are these gentle, slow, meditative films about grief. Nomadland, Pig, and then Drive My Car. I probably just concocted this whole idea so we could talk about Pig, basically. Because <laughs> in my opinion, Pig was the best film of 2021. But yeah, what do these three films in particular have in common? I think tonally, they're all very similar. They're humanistic, they're compassionate. They are, and I, I, I really think like meditative is a, a perfect word, Yeah. even poetic. Meant to inspire contemplation. Yeah, and they all... They just don't shy away from grief. It's not just some tool to tell a story. You know, it's not a mechanism for someone to have this big dramatic reconciliation. It's a character, in a way, that basically accompanies these main characters and is there with them side by side, influencing their actions. Yeah, that's well said. It's not grief used for dramatic end. It's not treated lightly and there aren't easy answers. These films are kind of open-ended and they're slow. I think they're trying to be honest. Maybe part of it is that right now, grief and trauma and mental health, these are hot topics. Yeah, I remember when we were talking about the idea, I kind of, I couldn't remember if these films were done during the pandemic or before and put on hold. Because to me, like, if they were filmed during the pandemic, that might make sense, you know, why there's this kind of theme in films lately. But you made a good point of like, well, it doesn't necessarily matter if that was the intent. That's influencing how we view these films. Right. Have you noticed that that kind of seems to be the theme for the year or even the last few years? You know, surely there have always been movies about grief, but in the particular way that these movies are doing it, I do think that it's a trend and also that it's so well received is really telling. Yeah. Like in the case of Nomadland and Drive My Car. So I think maybe they're meeting a need. Yeah. And while Pig was not nominated for Best Picture, it is Cage's highest rated film ever on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, like, wow. Through that metric. Mm -hmm. But there just does seem to be a, a tonal quality, even the way that these films are shot, that I kind of thought was similar when I was thinking about the three. They're not showy. They are observational. Yeah. They involve like pretty static cameras in a lot of ways. We're just observers. Right. <laughs> So I think, because uh, Jonathan, you were already talking about Pig and you just saw it, and we'll, we'll start there. I'll just kind of give a quick synopsis. Once again, there'll probably be some spoilers. So if you want to watch these films, what are you doing? Go see them. You should have watched them by now, but we'll let you listen after you watch them. It's fine. Pig is, honestly, the plot sounds absurd when you think about it. Nick Cage is a recluse living in the wilderness of Oregon with his pig that finds truffles. He sells his truffles to this like young hotshot in the dining scene in Portland. And early on in the film, Nick Cage's pig is taken from him because they want to find truffles with it, I guess. And those truffles are worth a lot of money. And so what happens is Nick Cage goes to find his pig through the seedy underbelly of the Portland dining scene. Because there's like this criminal element. It's definitely not a thriller film but there is still like a little bit of a criminal element so that's pretty much the story in a nutshell but through that you see Robin Cage's character go back into society that he left and you start to learn about his dealing with grief and why he's living in the woods 
This movie is concerned with way more than a movie about a dude finding his pig. It's very concerned with facing one's mortality and carrying on in spite of loss and how to refine that passion after grief. It blows my mind, really, how those all those elements come out of this film. And it's about holding things in perspective and caring about the things that are really important to you and not caring about the things that don't matter. The movie is fascinating to me because all of the expectations that come with that premise and with Nicolas Cage as an actor, he is initially some menacing and doesn't say a whole lot. Yeah, he's a recluse. And he turns out to be a deeply caring individual as determined as Liam Neeson is in Taken. (laughs) (laughs) But he never uses that as justification to hurt anybody. And I thought that was really moving. It's wild to me because he goes and finds the young man's dad, like the young man that's been helping him, Amir, I think was the character's name. And his dad basically threatens him. You know, he's like, you're not getting that pig back. He's like, how much money do you want? And Nick Cage says, I don't want any money. I just want my pig. And he's like, well, you're not getting it. And if you try anything, I'll kill the pig. And <laughs> you expect Nick Cage to, to leave, which he does, and come back with a vengeance, right? You expect him to come back, kick the door down, shoot the place up, beat the shit out of the guy or something. Yeah. But no, he, he leaves and he comes back armed with food, <laughs> with this idea to like really get to the core of this person and expose his grief. And prepares a masterful meal for him. It was the same meal that, or the guy who has his pig and his dead wife ate, like in one of the best nights of their life. Amir Amir alludes to it earlier in the film, like Mm -hmm. the only time he remembers his parents ever being happy, like coming home and not arguing, was after they went to Robin's restaurant. And so Robin makes that very meal that his parents had. And that's what ultimately like breaks the core of the really menacing crime lord guy. And he breaks down and tells Nick Cage, you know, your pig's dead, I'm sorry. And rather than being angry and menacing, he's now empathetic with Nick Cage. Yeah. Because he was dealing with grief in his own way. It's powerful. That starts his journey once he has to accept that he's alone again. Because I think a lot of his grief and loneliness was being transferred into that companionship he had with the pig. You know, now it's gone. Yeah. So he's confronted again with, with these demons he's never really addressed and confronted. The dinner scene is a powerful moment of creative nonviolence. What if he had used violence and hurt people and it had been dead all along? He would have caused more damage for nothing. And if the film went down that road, it might have been an enjoyable, insane Nick Cage film but then you would have moved on not really thought about it so definitely like pig is brilliant in what it restrains and what it leaves out yeah we have to just talk about like how great nick cage is he gives the performance which is necessary for this character and he's not big and bold really he is withdrawn quiet mostly muttering his lines kind of like looking at the floor but it is such a good performance he along with the characters in the other two films is he's trying to he lost his his sense of home you know when his when his wife died he and he he left so he's, he's trying to find that again but he's kind of forced to do it through the relationship with his pig being taken from him mm. like Francis McDormand's character in Nomadland he kind of isolates himself he turns on his passion which was cooking like he, he says I'm done with it he can't do it anymore and so I just I just thought that was interesting of all things the uh, loss of his pig forces him to confront the demons that he has I think this occurred to me because I was thinking of it in contrast to Nomadland but when you're introduced to him in the beginning and he's living in his shack in the woods it kind of seems like a homeless guy living in a shack and then when he goes back to the woods at the end of the film there is a slow 360 degree pan Mm. shot from inside his cabin and it shows you the inside like all the way around oh yeah and you see him walking past each window but it occurred to me no this is a home he's got all his pots and pans on the wall and there's just all of these other items in the cabin and it feels very homey it no longer feels like a shack 
it no longer feels like mm. he's some barbarian. It's like, no, this is a, a lovingly put together space. In the end, it just feels like such a beautiful home. Yeah. If you know, at the end of Nomadland, Fern, Francis McDermott's character, goes back to Empire. She doesn't end up like staying, but that was her home, and, and that's yeah. kind of how she comes to terms with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a beautiful scene. Is that the very end? I think so. She... Yeah, or it's, it's really close. I don't know if it's like the final shot. She walks through the shell of her old house. She walks out the back door and out into the wilderness. That's her whole journey. What made it home is gone. That final scene where Nick Cage does return, I, I couldn't stop thinking about it, honestly. Mm-hmm. When we talk about it and when I think about it, I still get chills. When he finally allows himself to listen to his dead wife singing to him. Um, and I, I saw this in the Moxie, I remember, and like, it was one of those scenes where the movie's over and nobody's moving or saying yeah, anything. Because uh-huh. she's playing a song and it's beautiful. And uh, he just uh, he just looks up and there's almost like a, right, there's like a kind of a light that shines on his face almost. Mm-hmm. And his face says it all. You know, I mean, it's complicated. It's it's hopeful. It's sad. It's lonely. And then the, the film ends. And I, I was just like so moved by that and devastated and felt affirmed too. I, I, it was very complicated. And I love the ending. I love how ambiguous it is. You have no idea if he's going to be okay or not. You just mm-hmm. have an idea that he's accepted something. But his journey, you know, in his dealings with grief was to isolate and disappear basically go back and shun everything that reminded him of her i think that's kind of how that character dealt with it and then in the end he's still alone but he's at least now reckoned with it powerful film my favorite film of the last year for sure and we just we have to say it we don't get a lot of things we don't get a lot of things to care about to care about that line could to, be to really care to about. really care that line could be so cheesy and melodramatic it's, it's on the cusp in the scene Nick Cage is talking to this guy who owns like this fancy farm to table restaurant that I guess is doing really well and gets really good reviews but you can tell the guy he doesn't really care about it he puts on a brave front the owner but he doesn't really care about it and Nick Cage starts asking him about like his idea for a restaurant and how it fell through and basically he's asking him why did you give up on your dreams and he makes that statement we don't get a lot of things to really care about talk about a heart punch yeah it's a great line you said it's almost cheesy I think there are definitely scenes in the movie that feel a bit much and yet they play well enough yeah but that scene it's like this is a bit much but also it's great (laughs) yeah I I didn't think it was a bit much I thought it landed and the actors sell it and then you know the the dinner scene where the you know essentially the villain is like overcome with emotion tasting this food and the memories that come with it there are moments that feel like you said a little cheesy but it works yeah I think yeah when he says like I remember every meal I've ever cooked and every person I've ever served like, yeah. Come on. <laughs> the guy is like a living legend to some of the people in the film, and it's kind of funny how much reverence they like treat him yeah for just being a good chef yeah but take that to heart we don't get a lot of things to really care about and one day it's all gonna fall into the ocean yeah he says at one point yeah yeah and we'll be left alone staring up at a light but pig man moving film so moving that it made me want to do an episode on grief (laughs) (laughs) so that brings us to nomadland you want to summarize it for us there jonathan this is what i remember the main character she's been on the road for some time she lost her husband she lost her home and now chooses to live out of her van set up camp with other nomads and to just go from place to place and find temporary work the movie is just about it's about her but it's about people who choose that lifestyle and that culture which is specific to like the american west many of the characters in the film 
film are real people who go by their real names and tell their real stories. And they're fascinating. Yeah, I guess that's a real thing. That meeting they have in Arizona. They do yeah. a meeting of the nomads mm-hmm. every year. That leader character, Bob. Yeah. Or other. Yeah, he's a real guy. And so it's, it is a movie, but it's kind of a quasi-documentary. And it yeah. is exploring this segment of the population that, for different reasons, fell away from society. Some of them lost their homes in the 2008 recession. Some of them, after working decades at a job, realized, oh, my pension is gone for whatever reason. Yeah. And I have, I have nothing, you know. At the time when it came out, I know some people were taking issue with the way that it portrays these people. But I don't think the movie's trying to... The movie is not after social commentary. I think people criticized it for not just coming out and saying, like, Amazon exploits people. I don't think it needed to just come out and say it. No. You just watched the film. Yeah, exactly. That's, <laughs> well, that's exactly how I feel. You need to be fucking spoon-fed. Yeah. The movie, though, it honors the people in it who have hope and have pride and haven't given up. And so it doesn't show them as victims. Yeah. You know? It seemed like some people wanted that from the film. It wanted the film to underline the fact that people like this have been wronged by society. Yeah, they. Um, I, I agree with your assessment. The film is it's concerned with the people living that life, not necessarily the events that made them nomads. But the film by no means is apologetic towards like, corporations or tries to right. hold them up. I mean, I, I just think you're looking for a fight where there is none right. in, that, in that regard. People want art to tell us what to think and I don't want yeah I don't want that <laughs> and, the, and the, the people that the film's based on the non-actors the non-professionals mm-hmm. that are part of that nomadic tribe so to speak they just they carry on they've experienced loss but they're so resilient they're resilient yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a celebration of them and I don't know I'm not in their head but according to the film's portrayal they're not walking around like asking to be pitied right. or asking for justice to be served they're coming to terms with loss in their own way and that, that could be loss of loved ones or the loss of a lifestyle the loss of an ideal where they worked their whole lives like you said and found out at the end it didn't matter they're, they're still struggling to get by and that's I guess how this film deals with grief these people deal with it through I guess freedom in a way they kind of isolate by choice um, by being nomadic and I know Fern Francis McDermott's character she's not grumpy or mean or gruff but she's definitely chooses to isolate herself yeah mm-hmm. and she has places she could go she has a sister mm-hmm. with a home offers a home to her multiple times in the movie she chooses the road again it doesn't explicitly get into reasons why but you can imagine well honestly like being on the road with her during the course of the film when she stays with her sister for a moment in the suburb the film gives you that sense of like oh this is weird and of course she can't live here yeah or when she's offered a place with i don't remember the character's name but the older gentleman who fancies her he offers her a place with him and his family that also feels just out of place and i think i don't think she can settle down until she or maybe she never will but like she she can't settle down while while still processing that grief i think that's how she's going through it because her you know in the film her husband died mm-hmm. and then the town that she called home died literally mm-hmm. became a ghost town the zip code was eliminated that's based off of a real place, or Empire is a real place yes. that mm-hmm. was eliminated. And so it's that, that loneliness and grief that kind of sets her off on this odyssey. Obviously, it's not a necessity to a degree, but like you said, she's had opportunities to settle down, and she doesn't do it. And I really think because the character hasn't come to terms with that loss of home yet, so she can't make a home somewhere, because in her mind, home doesn't exist. Right. You can't just manufacture another one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Another thing I wanted to say about some of the people in the film who are actual nomads, yes, they have their reasons for going out on the road, 
But then they've obviously found something out there that keeps them out there, that keeps them like addicted to that lifestyle. There's like a real sense of community in certain scenes among these people. Yeah. And the beauty of the natural world, the time that they have to themselves, because, I mean, these people work, but they probably work less than people who own homes and have full-time jobs. But then their lives revolve around survival and necessity. And if you've ever been camping for more than a couple days, like, that's addictive. You, you... By the end of, like, a five-day camping trip, I love my hot shower. Sure, but... Um, I love it. <laughs> or, like, going to war. Oh, yeah, And coming home. I'm familiar with that. And... <laughs> And coming home, you can imagine that, like, the mundane quality of, like, watching TV or going grocery shopping is just deadening. Yeah. You. So I experienced that to, to a lesser extent when I was in my early 20s and still a believer. I went on a missions trip to Rwanda. I was there for a month. It was incredibly different, obviously, the United States. For for a month straight, you know, I had, like, a clear purpose. You know, now in hindsight, no offense to anybody, but I think that was misguided maybe a little bit. But still, I had, I had purpose, and my life was drastically different, and my worries were getting up this next hill and interacting with these children, pushing a van out of a rut, you know? You were on a mission. I was on a mission, yeah. And when I came back to the United States, it was hard, like, for a few months. Like, I struggled because it was, like, reverse culture shock in a way. Mm-hmm. I felt aimless and like, what, what is all this? What are we doing? I, yeah. I go to work, I go to sleep. Yeah. So maybe, yeah, a little off topic, but I, I experienced to a smaller degree kind of what you're talking about mm. personally. Mm -hmm. It was not great. Yeah. <laughs> and it is hard to readjust. Yeah. So I couldn't imagine if you did that for years and years, you know, how hard that would be to reacclimate yourself to the mundane day-to-day -day routine of the modern living. Yeah, and these people, like, obviously they, in some sense, like, <laughs> their lives probably have a vitality that, you know, just a different quality than, than my own because my days look very much the same. You know, yeah, it's very, very scheduled, very standardized. And so I don't know. It's easy. It's easy to see all that to say. It's easy to see that, like, yes, these people had unfortunate circumstances. And yes, maybe they were pushed in this direction, but also they embraced it. And they yeah. found a life that they prefer, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps. But I, another thing I love about this film is how like quintessentially American it is. And the interesting thing to me is the director, She she's American, but she was born in uh, Beijing and she grew up in China. And so I I wonder if she has like um, just a unique perspective on like American culture, you know, being immersed in both cultures. Because you and I, like, this is all we've ever known. But when you have somebody who has a different perspective from another culture and then can look at, like, America through a more critical lens, a more, like, curious lens, mm -hmm. you might get this, like, a film like Nomadland out of that. Uh, someone who is curious about American culture and trying to understand it could really nail it <laughs> more, see, more so than those of us more clearly. Yeah, who, live, who live in this. Yeah, she. I think she's clearly fascinated by America and the things that kind of make America different, I guess. Yeah. Like her previous film, The Rider, is also like basically a documentary. The main character plays himself and his family plays his family and so on and so forth. And it's set on a Native American reservation. Um, and it's all about like rodeo and riding horses. Yeah. And that's an incredible film, too. But she, yeah, anyway, she's obviously 
interested in the things about America that make it unique. And I just feel like the characters and the people in Nomadland are like just from a long tradition of like Americans wandering. <laughs> That's in our history. Even early in the film, uh, Fern's sister like mentions like I think she's a pioneer. You know, she's in a long tradition of people constantly moving west. <laughs> you know, I don't yeah, I don't know if it's unique to our country, but it's definitely within like the DNA of our story and our lore. That wandering spirit, that free spirit, that the rugged individual who who goes out west and makes their own way. Uh, maybe these people have been forced to do that, but they're very much in that same vein of the rugged. Like individual who's finding themselves out west. Yeah, it's interesting. We've got, and they're all old people. <laughs> yeah. They're not John Wayne. <laughs> We've got so much space in the Midwest and in the West. We're not settled anywhere for very long. Yeah, and so that makes it easier to wander. I think. Yeah, and that, that and harder, easier to wander, harder to settle down. Yeah, and really plant roots. And that's what interests me about Fern. Is I think she. You know, everything that we know about the character, I think she is nomadic at heart, but she she finds a modicum of home in her dead husband. She made a home with him. So it wasn't even necessarily a place. It was more a relationship right. that the place grew out of. And so I think when he dies, that home dies, and that's how she deals with the grief. It's going back to like kind of her nomad roots, that utilizing freedom as, as a salve for the pain. When she's with her sister for that brief time, I think there's a scene of her sister's husband and then of his friend like in the backyard, and they're talking about... I think they're talking about like stock prices or something. <laughs> Sounds about right. Or how it was like a good time to make a bunch of money because... I might like dig a hole and dive into it at that party. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you hear them and how like opportunistic they are and how unconcerned with how like real people are being affected by like price fluctuation and whatever. And how to them it's just this abstract game that they can use to line their pockets. And we've been on the road with this character and it just seems so fake and... Yeah far away from what is real in life. Yeah, you're definitely getting, in both films, you're getting like an outsider's perspective on modern society, like what we consider normal, being viewed through the lens of people that absolutely don't fit into that mold. And then there's the scenes of her just like being in the landscape. She's at the ocean at one point. Yeah, I wanted to bring that up. Yeah. (laughs) Go ahead, sorry. It's just I just wanted to bring it up because... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, I wanted to. Because the... Because again, like, the film just kind of witnesses... Right. The power of the natural world and her in it and it's not really like it maybe it's it's beautiful right absolutely it's not necessarily inspiring and uplifting it's like oh you are very small it's powerful and this world is huge yeah i when i think of those scenes i think those are the scenes that kept that movie from being too slow because it's not boring by any means it's a slow film but it kept it would suck you in like it kind of jolt you awake kind of slapping the face a little bit when it would fo- fixate on like her smallness against like the very tempestuous and like torrential physical landscapes mm-hmm. you know so i love those scenes those were powerful talk about like punching my stomach yeah. especially when she's on the pacific coast so i'm glad you brought them up i just wanted to relive that yeah, we put so many layers of like romanticization over the natural world because it is awe-inspiring, but also it's like, I don't want to say despairing, but there's something about it. It just makes you consider your relative insignificance in the world. Yeah, well, I did. I mean, I have heard that Pig is a film very much concerned with nihilism. <laughs> Perhaps Nomadland has a little nihilistic impulse in it, a little nihilistic tendencies. It's there in those scenes. I mean, some of that's just me, but also I think Nomadland is like 
pretty, as I said, humanistic as, as far as like, I think basically the film and Chloe Zhao as a filmmaker sees the good in everyone and like wants to, just wants to understand people. Yeah. And like Pig, it is just a gentle, like meditative, ambiguous film about someone coming to terms with loss and dealing with it. They just maybe deal with it a little differently. I guess maybe that's where I saw the parallels, the pacing, the tenderness. I think is the big thing. Like they were just, they're tender films. And maybe just the emotional punch they both gave me too. And there's no resolution. Right. The powerful last scenes where you're pretty sure the character has accepted something, but we're still not sure if they're going to be okay. The character is on a journey and that journey is not over. Yeah. Nick Cage is maybe a nomad in his own mind. (laughs) So Nomadland, great film. Great film. Go watch it. Go watch it. Oh man. Jonathan, you, you still doing okay, buddy? We've been talking a lot about death and... (laughs) <laughs> loss and, and sadness. You know these are my favorite topics. Yeah, me too. I have no yeah, I have no qualms talking about death. I see you got more scotch though. That's how I deal. Yeah, and I guess we do that every episode. So uh, in between scotch, we also have been drinking Casey Beer Company's Pure Pilsner. At the sake of sounding lame, I'm a big fan of Pilsners. Good ones, of course, because I think they're easy to make but hard to master. And how do you feel about this one? This one's excellent. Casey Beer Company, they don't take a misstep. They really don't. Yeah, I, this is something you can drink any day with anything, but it's not bland or, or watery like a lot of like the mass-produced Pilsners. But I, I remember watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine. You ever watched that? One of the officers, like her ex-boyfriend, is like the most boring guy in the world and he loves pilsners <laughs> and so like, ever since then I'm like I don't really want to say I love pilsners <laughs> but I love pilsners damn well, it it feels good you know what I'm dealing with grief right I think the boring answer is at this point is to say that you love IPAs right I don't True. know I don't know anybody who We're getting says close to sours, besides being you who says I love pilsners that's true. Fuck yeah. Well, me and the most boring man in the world. I think Sours are getting there too. Yeah. Like Sours, maybe mm-hmm. the new IPA. Yeah. I've been through seasons of loving really dark beers or mm-hmm. loving like beers with high ABV. But right now it's like, I want something drinkable. I want a lager, a pale ale, not just any, but like a solid one. Yeah. I was talking to my cousin last night about how I definitely got into the craft beer boom and liked all the bizarre flavor combinations that were coming up, like chocolate cherry stouts and very banana smoothie sour. I mean, crazy shit that I applaud people for their creativity. And I'm not saying those are bad beers, but anymore, I just feel like I want traditional beers like Pilsners and lagers yeah. and stouts, like things that have just been around forever. It's kind of crazy. I guess just getting old, man. <laughs> I recently tried Sapporo for the first time. I love Sapporo. And because you see it at every Japanese restaurant, yeah. I just assumed that it would be like Budweiser, but it was so good. It's like, so good. Did it you have had, a draft? Yeah. Yeah. It had so much more flavor than I into and it had a nice bite. Yeah, support on draft. I get it every time I'm at a Japanese place. It's excellent. All right, well, we love uh, we love our, I guess, traditional but solid beers. So, Speaking of Sapporo and Japanese culture, the next film we're going to talk about is Drive My Car, hailing from Japan. And in Drive My Car, it's a three-hour film. There's a lot. There's about a lot. Grief. To- <laughs> I mean, after the movie, like, it's such a, it is such a quiet movie, but then you start thinking about all of the plot points, and you're like, there's some 
crazy stuff in this movie. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Do we want to try to give a summary? Yeah, I, th- I think just a, a quick synopsis. I don't know any of the characters' names. <laughs> I, okay, I remember the wife's name is Otto, right? Or Oto? It's O-T-O. There's basically a husband and a wife. They connect through telling each other stories. They don't really talk otherwise. They talk to each other through these stories that they tell because he's an actor and she's a like a producer. And he comes home early in the film and finds her having an affair with a young man. And he never confronts her about it. He just leaves and like basically acts like nothing happened. And then she dies abruptly from an aneurysm. And then the movie actually begins. Yeah, the opening credits are 35 to 40 minutes into the movie. <laughs> yeah. And so the main overarching plot, it's, it's actually not that complicated. He, he's invited to Hiroshima this, or Nagasaki. It's like an artist residency or workshop where yeah. he is brought in. Because it's a play that he's famous for yeah. having Un- performed Uncle Von, in, yeah. But he is directing this play. And these performers are from all over the world. Yeah, it's a, it's a multilingual play. He puts that on, and in the process, he befriends a young lady who drives him around. He's not allowed to because some accident that happened years ago with a resident artist. And just through that relationship and the driving the car process and the play, you learn more about the young lady. Their relationship grows, and they basically both begin to deal with their own trauma and grief. So what can we say about this film? It's tender. It's gentle. It's beautiful. It's It's really long. (laughs) It is long. And I don't mind long films. I don't mind a a three-hour movie. I was at some point thinking, this had better be going somewhere. (laughs) And it does. It does. And it does. It is rewarding, ultimately. I don't know that it necessarily needed to be quite as long as it was. No, I don't think so. But I did really like it. Hell, if you had cut half the driving scene towards the end, where they're going back to the driver's hometown, Uh you probably would have cut like 40 minutes from the film. There is something to be said, though, for the long wait. Because basically you're sitting there like, okay, where, you know, they're traveling, they're traveling. What is this leading to? That probably does do something for the pivotal moment once it happens. Yes, it is cathartic. It is powerful, for sure. You're, You're waiting in anticipation and you finally get this explosion of emotion. So how does this film, how does it kind of connect with... Nomadland and Pig. Like those films, it's tender and gentle and meditative, and it's very much concerned with grief. I guess maybe the difference is, in this case, the character doesn't isolate physically, but he does isolate emotionally. He doesn't really allow himself to dwell on his sadness and his anger with his wife having an affair. Mm -hmm. And like those other two films, he does find himself unable to do something that he used to do, right? He can't play the the lead role in Uncle Von. I just thought that was interesting when I was thinking about those three films. The characters basically like turn their back on what used to define them. And it's all about delayed catharsis. In the end, ultimately, he ends up having so much in common with this girl that she opens up and he opens up and he confesses basically like, I wish that I had confronted my wife. Yeah, before that's she, a beautiful before moment. Before she died. Powerful. Like, I wish that I had told her. Well, and I think he even is phrasing it as like, I wish she was here so I could he misses her and he misses not being honest to lose someone when there's something between you yeah unspoken basically he wishes that there hadn't been anything between them when she passed and that's why I think it's important in the beginning of the film it seems like they're only really truthful with each other through these stories right the wife tells him basically what's happening in her life but she's posing it as like the idea for a script she even alludes to the affair and he's never really honest you know it's kind of interesting like he's an actor which that's not a 
coincidence. You know, he plays somebody. Well, he's also playing somebody as a husband. He's not ever really honest with his wife. And so that's why that's, that end scene is so important, that catharsis that, that he has and that, that honesty where he finally see his anger, his sadness. He's vulnerable, finally. Mm. You know, even waiting the whole film for that. And another thing that was interesting to me too when I was thinking about this was like, so we don't go back to his home necessarily, but we still go back to the scene of a crime, so to speak, an emotional crime with the, with the woman, the young girl's old home. And in, all, in every case, like Nomadland Pig and Drive My Car, when you go back to these places of significance, that's when the change happens, the acceptance, the catharsis. It's an honest look at grief. I love that about these three films. It's just the humanistic element in them. Just the acceptance of like how fucking difficult grief is and how there's never really a clean end to it. There's just a journey. And all three of these films, these characters go on a long journey to face their grief. And it usually requires them coming back to the place where it all happened. Yeah, I, I would encourage people to give these films a chance. I realize how I sound. I'm saying, I don't know if I can recommend Drive My Car. <laughs> But um, anybody who knows me and knows I like kind of process verbally and I change my mind a lot. And uh, as I'm thinking, give these films a chance. You know, you're even, not a worse person for seeing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> these films that like seem daunting and seem slow on the surface, but really draw you in and really make you take stock of your humanity and the temporary nature of life and can be cathartic if you've experienced loss. To watch these characters also experience loss and go through these journeys. Beautiful films. Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> what do you think, John? Are you, are you done talking about death and grief? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You seem kind of down, buddy. Are you okay? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I feel good. Okay. I might be all talked out, but I feel yeah. good. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, for those of you that stuck it out, maybe go think about what's important to you and the people you love and give them a hug. We, as a podcaster, are here to help you reassess your life. <laughs> yeah. Think about the few things you really get to care about. On another note, hey, if you like the show, give us a follow at Exploring Cinema 417 on Instagram. Also, Jonathan has a great account on Letterboxd. What's your tag there? My username on Letterboxd is Zachary. There you can find years of reviews if you want <laughs> yeah yeah and I'll follow you back I love seeing what people think about movies and I just recently got on the letterbox train so follow me at reformed by film I don't write reviews yet but you can at least see what I'm watching and, and what I'm ranking thanks for listening I'm Josiah and I'm Jonathan and you all keep exploring <laughs>